everybody. Welcome to the YamCast. My name is Erica. And I am Chris. YAM actually stands for Young Adult Ministry. So the goal of this podcast is to talk about college and young adult ministry and how to effectively do that. Yeah. And the music in our episode is from our lovely friend Brian Nielsen and James DeWalt. He just makes us sound so good. So Judges, Judges 2, finally there. Judges 2 starts off with, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to your fathers. And it ends with, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So there's a problem with Judges 2. At least that's what some liberal scholars would say, mm-hmm. right? You look at Judges 1, basic storyline of Judges 1 was this idea that Joshua, after he died, they didn't quite do the land that they were supposed to. But Judges 2 talks all about Joshua again, and you're like, why is this happening? You're like, wait, he already passed away. This is really, really weird. So I would have proposed that this is probably the bookend of what actually is Judges. And Judges 1, perhaps, is maybe the whole storyline all wrapped into a little bit. Okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. One way to look at it would be that Judges 1 is sort of, this is basically what happened in the story. T- chapter 2 is like, here's the actual part of the story. You know, we didn't do what we were supposed to do. Joshua was, you know, he was faithful, but he didn't finish the job. We also didn't finish the job. And then... That, that'll dump us into Judges 3 and beyond, and it'll just sort of show us the chaos. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of Genesis, right? Like Genesis 1 is him creating everything, and then Genesis 2, you're like, wait, he goes back and he creates again, but it's really just the story more right. specifically of how he creates man. So Right, so how some people have described Genesis 1 is that it's, it's kind of like this story all to itself, and then it sort of kicks out a little story below it, and Genesis 2 swells into... So you can almost think about it like days one through six are this, ended with day seven, and then chapter two is day six opened up in a way fresher way. Mm-hmm. And then chapter three, in another sense, could be day you know, day eight or nine. I mean, who mm-hmm. knows how quickly yeah. they ate the fruit, but it might be like the next day, which would be really bad for us. <laughs> that would be really sad. But it could be. Like, we have no <laughs> like idea. Like, they lasted three hours. Right. I kind of wish we knew. Right. So we have no idea the timeline in Genesis 1 and 2. Similarly, we have no idea Judges 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. It's also possible that we're looking at two different authors that Judges 1 was was one person writing a summary, Judges 2 is another person writing a summary, and then they compile all the stories and make Judges 3 through 21 happen. Because, yeah, we don't know the author, and it's believed that it's different, a lot of different authors, right? So It's either believed that it's a lot of different authors or it's a lot of source material that's been pulled together, which that's kind of what I wanted to cover, at least partly in the basic storyline. And what we just said could be very uncomfortable for some people. Mm-hmm. Because I think some people think that the Bible was written, individuals just sort of like were writing and the Lord just overwhelmed them. And then they sort of, you know, really some Christians I've talked to, it almost, they, they act like people were possessed, you know, and mm-hmm. then start scribbling, you know, whatever the Lord says. Right, right, right. And, like a yeah. weird, kind of a weird way of looking at it, which I don't think when Paul's writing his letters to Timothy that it's possession. I think the Holy Spirit is leading him. And those of us who are familiar with the idea you know, we have a thing called the description of a disciple person, 
we call it dependence on the spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't like overwhelm me at moments and do stuff for me. What happens is the Holy Spirit leads me to make a decision or to say something. And then someone else says, well, that's exactly what I needed to hear. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. So it wasn't like I was totally overwhelmed you know, and, and frolicking through the streets with the spirit leading me or something, which would be it's funny and but... a great idea right in our head. But the idea is that the spirit is leading, using individuals to do certain things. And so if you want to think about it this way, think about all of the stories of the judges. We don't even know if these are all of the stories. There might've been a dozen more judges. There might've been 50 more judges that we just don't know about because their stories don't go the way that we want it to go. But what happened at some point in Israel's history is someone took all of this wonderful material and compiled it into the theological text that we have, right? Mm-hmm. So, and those individuals were inspired by the Spirit to do it the way they did it. It's not like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think yeah. sometimes we just misunderstand what inspiration looks like. And, and with Judges, this is one of those books that liberal scholars would say, well, see, this proves that God isn't in it. And I, I would say quite the contrary. This proves that God's using many different possible authors in really cool ways to tell us the story. And as we start to move into Judges, you know, Judges 2 has sort of give us a hint, like a wink, wink of what's going on. There's some really serious problems in the book of Judges. This is what you're paying attention to, right? Mm-hmm. So the basic storyline of Judges 2, in my opinion, would be this. The angel of the Lord is involved. Uh, the people of Israel don't do what they're supposed to do. The angel of the people of Israel start to actually serve other gods and do things that they're not supposed to do. And all of those things sort of springboard us into the rest of the story, Judges 3 and on. The Deeper Dive. That was good at the end. I liked that. It was very extended. It was good. Long. Mm-hmm. So if the basic storyline of, of Judges is what we just described, basically there's there's worship of other gods, there's disobedience, and uh, yeah, that the Lord is sending messengers to sort of help us out. Those messengers in the book of Judges are actually the judges. And what's ironic is Judges 1 and 2 we have no idea who the judges are yet. Did you notice that? Yeah. We have no we have no name yet as to who a judge is, what makes them a judge, or anything like that. Judges 3 will dive us into that. But in the meantime, there's some very interesting characters in Judges 2 that I do want to get into and some other things along with the deeper dive that we want to, you know, that we want to play along with. So one of those is this angel of the Lord character in verse one. It I would say he although there is no gender attached to the angel of the Lord. So for the sake of, of just keeping it with this, and because we live in 2020 and people kind of get freaked out about things, I'll try to use the word it more than he, but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that the individual is genderless. It just means that we don't know their gender. Do they have a gender? I don't know. In fact, Jesus might suggest that they don't because he says they wouldn't. the angels are not marrying and all that kind of thing. However, what we talked about a few weeks ago in the podcast some angelic beings definitely rebelled and may or may not have impregnated uh, women. So there's some type of something going on, but I don't know what that means yeah. or looks like. Hmm. So all that, that to say, we're going to avoid using gender here uh, as much as we can, but understand that you know it might mess that all up. One of the things that we need to think about with the angel of the Lord, and, I, and I'm going to pull some of this from a resource called the Dictionary of Demons and Deities. Dun, dun, dun. DDD. Not to be confused with D and D, which are totally different things. <laughs> yes. For those people who like Dungeons and Dragons, you either just got really offended or really excited. We love know. you too. Yeah. We we are super fond of you and your 
card game. <laughs> All right. That was a jerk thing to say, Chris. You're mean. All right. So the angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? What does this look like? There's a couple of things that I want to talk about with this coming from this resource, the, the Dictionary of Demons and Deities. And you can find that in all different kinds of places. It's a very expensive resource, but it's a good one. Every god in the ancient world had messengers who went and did things on their behalf. Some of these were, sometimes it was children. Sometimes it was uh, a possessed individual, you know, that they sort of indoctrinated. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't know if you uh, saw Alita, Battle Angel. Did you watch that movie? You didn't. Can't say that I There's have, There's this Chris. great character with a huge plot twist that I'm not going to get into. But this individual throughout the whole movie sort of uses technology to like possess people and then do what they, he does things on their behalf. So he'll, all of a sudden their eyes turn blue and they start talking in different ways. And you're like, oh, the dude just totally took them over. That's not what we're talking about in the ancient is this world. A, is this a kid's movie? What uh, no, is this? No, no, Not a kid's no, movie? Not a kid's movie. But in the middle of that, there's this, this is sort of a thing that it's, it's all over in the ancient world. It's all over in our current culture and stuff like that. That this idea of gods and deities moving into individuals and sort of moving them along to do things, right? That's what, that's really what demon possession is to some extent, right? It's mm -hmm. a it's a spiritual being indwelling a body and causing them, you to do things, right? Telling them to do stuff and, and and possessing their body. So we use the word possession stuff like that. What's interesting about this versus the angel of the Lord is this isn't a possession issue. The angel of the Lord is a specific being who shows up and does things. Now, throughout the biblical text, there's a couple of different ways that this shows up. Okay, the, the angel of the Lord or the Malik Yahweh, right? Uh, That's what get, it is. When they get into Hebrew, right? right. Hebrew. Yeah. Uh, he, he or it, whatever you want to use there, this individual shows up in different parts of the story and does the bidding of God or leads people to do things. However, sometimes. This is just a person that is following God's will. So this is used by different individuals, like in the book of Malachi or Haggai. The, even the name Malachi means my messenger, which is Malik Yahweh. And oh, okay. So, so sometimes a prophet might be referred to sort of as an angel of the Lord. However, more often than not in the Bible, it's a supernatural individual that shows up. And what's amazing is there are points in the story, and, and Judges is one of those spots. In fact, the book of Judges, the angel of the Lord shows up more than any other book in the Bible. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. So in this resource, it says the single book with the most appearances of the phrase, Malik Yahweh, is Judges. And this will show up in 2.1, which is why I'm bringing it up now. Mm -hmm. 2.4, 5.23, And then it shows up in a bunch of different places, Psalms, some other parts of the Pentateuch, so, you know, blah, 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 all the way down the line. But when this individual shows up, what's unique about, about this individual, this, this angel of the Lord, is they speak on God's behalf, and sometimes the Bible says, and the angel of the Lord spoke, and then the next time the sentence might say, and the Lord said. While it's still the angel of the Lord talking, it'll say, the Lord said. Do, do you follow what I'm saying So like here? he puts in his own? Either that or one or of the... Like through him, God is speaking? Correct. That's a possibility. That's the other possibility is, and this happens a lot between the time of Malachi and the time of, of the, you know, the New Testament being written or the time that Jesus walked the earth. 
during the middle of that, a lot of people were thinking about this, like the people in Qumran, the weird Essene people that we all hear about, these, these goofy Jewish people who are like counting down the end of the earth kind of stuff. These individuals, they spent a lot of time talking about, and, and this idea in the second temple period popped up, and it was called the second Yahweh figure, tied to the angel of the Lord, almost as if there was, there was Yahweh on his throne, and then there was an element of Yahweh that would go out before and say things to the people or lead people in a certain way. So some have suggested this is the pre-incarnate Christ. However, the, the word Christ is tied to Jesus being in body form. So you can't say really in pre-incarnate Christ. The better phrase might be this second power of heaven sort of thing, like this individual who is doing things on God's behalf as God, but yet is called the angel of the Lord. Does that make sense? And so it's the same one every time. Yeah. Almost without fail, unless it's one of those prophet individuals or something else showing up. But like in two one here, this is the, so suddenly think about it this way: all the Israelites haven't done what they're supposed to do, and all of a sudden in Judges two one, the angel of the Lord appears. And it is the angel of the Lord. I think is that. That's what it says. I know. Is that translated mm-hmm. correctly? Yes. Okay. Versus like in the book of Luke, where an angel of the Lord okay. appears, and the host That's of heaven are behind him. Right in the book of Luke, when the shepherds hear about this an angel of the Lord appears. And so some have even pointed out, Luke is maybe saying that an angel of the Lord versus judges the angel of the Lord because the angel of the Lord is in flesh in Luke 2. He's in a manger. Does that make sense? So you are saying that it's Jesus. I don't know, but I'm saying that's what people, that's what some have said. I'm I'm just saying we need to stop and just go, there's so much going on in every piece of text and part of the reason why I'm even bringing any of this up, because this could be super boring. Most people probably turned the podcast off already. But the reason why I'm bringing it up is every single verse is dripping with possibilities. People spend their entire lives studying just verses like Judges 2.1, trying to break down ideas like the angel of the Lord and trying to explain it. And they write these dictionary articles that no one wants to read because they're bored out of their minds mm-hmm. and like, oh, this is dumb. But the fact is, we there's so much going on in the biblical text. It just to me, I'm, I'm bringing it up because I think it proves that this book is supernatural. It's ridiculous. You could spend you, you could just pick a phrase out of the Bible, and then I could spend the rest of my life just trying to figure out what exactly that phrase means. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that we'll never figure it out because I that's not my point at all. My point is it's just so beautiful and so immense and so deep and so amazing that little pieces of it could turn into a lifelong pursuit. And yet the entire book is given to us and we're just sort of sitting here going, I have to read this whole thing. I have to figure this out. Yeah, you kind of do, which is part of why we chose Judges. I mean, it's a, it's a book that most people don't talk about. It's a book that most churches don't deal with. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, sure. <laughs> Clear make, as mud, What's Chris? uncomfortable for you about it? Well, <clears throat> I mean, as we've talked about, you are more of the scholar. I am more of the lay person practical. So... When you talk about those things, I have to think about them for like days for me to be like, okay, sure. I sort of get it. Let's move on. <laughs> Whereas you enjoy like extrapolating it all of the time. Whereas I'm like, and I need something that I can actually hold. You know what I mean? Right. So think about it this way. Judges 2 starts off with all of the people of Israel standing there. Joshua hasn't died yet but they did not take out the land like they were supposed to. And the angel of the Lord appears and says, you didn't do what I asked you to do. 
Now, what's amazing is the angel of the Lord in other places of scripture is talked about as being the leader of God's armies. So when Chris Tomlin sings a song like, you know who goes before me, you know who mm. goes behind, the God of angel armies is always on my side. Mm-hmm. Angel of the Lord. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. He's the angel. He's the heavenly host. He's the sort of the leader of the heavenly host. He's the one that goes and does things. He's like the attorney general. Sure. Except he actually has has more power than the attorney general. He actually can do things. Like imagine an attorney general who's also- Or like the secretary of state. What's like the highest- But imagine if the attorney general also was a general. And then imagine if that general actually fought battles. And then imagine if those battles were always won by the the general. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. This individual, when they show up on the battlefield, it's, it's over. Which is so significant when you look at the New Testament and other places when when Jesus is doing what he's doing, if if these things are connected, like some have suggested, it's just it's laying right before you, all the way back in the book of Genesis, leading into the book of Judges and so on and so forth. The deeper dive idea here is holy cow, God was always fighting for Israel, always showing up on their side, saying, Do you not see what you have here? The most powerful being in the entire universe is is able to fight for you and do things. And they're just not, they're not following him. Because, yeah, we, as human, we like shiny things and we get distracted (laughs) very easily. So we get to verse 11. Uh, This is a little bit more of the deeper dive. We're going to move away from the angel of the Lord idea. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals or the Baals. And they uh, abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from other gods of the people who are around them, they bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. So let's go back to this angel of the Lord idea. When he speaks in verse 1 of chapter 2, you should be going, whoa, this guy's really freaky. Then in a couple of verses later, they're up against him. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. The Lord is actually moving against them and in such a way that you're thinking this, this powerful individual who's in charge of the host of heaven is actually allowing things to just go crazy. And some have read this as, you know, when it says in verse 15, they marched out, the hand of the Lord was, was against them for harm. They think of that as God is actually sort of like squishing them with his finger that's probably not the best way to think about it, because if you read it really closely, whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and the Lord had sworn to them. Well, what does that mean? We'll go back to, uh, you know, back to verse thirteen. They abandoned the Lord and served the the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled, and He gave them over to plunderers. So what I want to suggest here is just think this through. If verse eleven through fifteen is talking about Israel's disobedience, what did they do to disobey? They served other gods. They went after other gods. They they thought, you know what? Yahweh isn't the one that we want to follow. We're going to go do our own thing. So as they run off and they go do their own thing, they're chasing after other gods. So what does God do? God just turns them over to those other gods. He loves them, yeah. You want to have something else? Then go have it. Just understand that if you go have that, the plunderers are going to come after you. Well, I mean, if you go through when he talks about with them about how to live all the way up until this point. I mean, he says, if you're with me, this, this, and this will happen. If you're against me, this, this, and this will happen, you know? Right. So, I mean, just as he said, like, as the Lord had sworn to them, like, as he had warned them. I mean, he's told them numerous times the things that will happen if if they choose to not be obedient. 
So they really shouldn't be surprised. But of course, they are. Yeah, and I don't think I need to defend God here because God doesn't need any defending. He's he's God, so he's he's a big boy and he can handle whatever we say to him and do to him. But I do want to point out, when we think of the hand of the Lord being against us, sometimes we think of it as a, a malicious thing. I want to suggest one other possible way to look at it is instead of God being malicious, so when people say stuff like, oh, God hates me or God's against me, yada, yada, yada. The other way to look at it is, God just abandoned you. And I don't mean that in a full abandonment sort of way, like he left you at a fire station, you know, as, a, as an infant. <laughs> More that God just said, fine, you want something else? Go do it. Which to me then ties to like the prodigal son concept, right? You want the inheritance? Here you go. Wait, you're just going to give it to me? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go do whatever I want with it. Yep. I know you will. And I'm okay because I'm God. I'm going to be able to handle it. I mean, yeah, it's giving them what they ultimately think they want. Yes. And it's by giving them what they want that they realize they messed up. So then you go to Romans 2.4, and it says, it's by your kindness, Lord, that you lead us to repentance. And sometimes we think of God as like he's going to just beat us down to get us to do what he wants us to do in the first place. I don't know that the biblical text bears that out. I think that might be a vastly misunderstood way of viewing God. It might be a totally different thing where the scariest thing God can do is give you what you want. Mm-hmm. That's brutal. And when you look at this angel of the Lord concept in the beginning of the chapter all the way to the end, and the Lord just sort of giving them over, ultimately they get what they want. And that's a problem. So the idea, this unfaithfulness of the Israelites leads to God letting them go. And I think the question I would be asking, the question I I typically do ask when I read Judges anyway, is if God just lets them go and gives them what they want, what are the areas in my life that I'm not surrendering to him that he's just letting me go and that he's just letting me get what I want? How am I messing up what I could be doing because I could be serving God? And that's not to put me in a place of guilt or shame or loathing, you know, like I'm so messed up, just more of a, hey, God, I want more of you, so give me more of you and help me to just see you clearly that as I'm struggling with sin or doing these other things, that I won't want want those things. I want what you want to give me because it's better, which brings us back to Genesis 1 and so on and so forth that we've already talked about. All right, so let's get practical. I don't think that's ever going to get old. No. So just kind of going back to this messenger's idea, um, you're talking with the, about the angel of the Lord. Granted, we are not the angel of the Lord as that messenger, but we are called still to be messengers. If mm-hmm. you're following Christ, you are called to talk about him and to tell people about him and to show people who he is. Um and so I just want us to be more aware of of what that looks like. What does being a good messenger mean? And in, in this in this text, it's saying what God actually says. Um, it didn't just say the angel says these things. It said, and the Lord said, repeating what the Lord actually said. Instead of a lot of times what I think we do and we paraphrase or we're like, I feel like he's saying this or, and we don't actually know. We just are going off of what we feel, which our feelings are very... Um, fleeting and can 
can trick us in a lot of ways too. So I think what we need to be doing as messengers is actually, as we've talked about a lot, being in the word and knowing what God actually says. Yeah. Think about it this way. In the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord appears to help lead his people to do what they're supposed to do. In the New Testament, Jesus does exactly what we couldn't do and leads us to the promised land in a way that Moses never could or the angel of the Lord didn't to the people of Israel. And then go one step further than that. The angel, if, if there is some type, and there's at least a parallel to Christ. I'm not saying it's mm-hmm. the same individual, but there's at least a parallel. If Christ saved us and freed us and made us new and then left us and sent us his spirit so that you and I could be the actual ambassadors for Christ that we're supposed to be, you and I have all the power of the angel Lord inside of us. That's crazy to think about. Yeah. I don't think I thought about that. So this, when it says things like the same power that rose Christ from the dead is in you, at least to some extent, part of that means you and I have nothing to fear when we're facing the whole world. And the angel of the Lord wasn't afraid to stand up and say, this is what we're supposed to be doing. Let's go do it. And if they failed, hey, we're failing. We should probably do this a different way. And what's even crazier is the book of Hebrews and other places talk about you and I are going to judge angels one day. So we're actually a level above all of the angelic beings that we talk about. Because we've been redeemed, we've been given access to God in a totally different way. So mm-hmm. if, if we're going to get super practical, <laughs> which is seems really theoretical and ridiculous, but you and I and everyone who's listening to this podcast who loves Jesus and is following Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to him, you in fact are the messenger that you're supposed to be mm-hmm. for him. So how are we doing? That's the big question. Mm-hmm. Another thought you touched on at the end of your of your deeper dive, but... If, if God, as he is known and has said to do, gives you over to the things that you want, you should be really checking yourself often as to what are the areas that are contrary to him. What are the areas in your life that you really think you want that are actually not of him or not what he would want for you? Because if you want those things greatly, he may end up giving them to you and it's not actually meant for you. Mm-hmm. Granted should bring it should make you realize that that's not what you thought it was going to be and that should bring you closer but that's a, causes a lot of extra heartache that you don't need to have in your life mm-hmm. if you can actually just check those things at the door so let's use a really practical example so let's say that you're struggling with pride which the biblical definition of that is that you'd rather do things your way than do them god's way nobody struggles with that nobody nobody at all so you're struggling with pride. You think, you know what, God, I, I'd love that you told me how to do it, but I'm going to do things my own way. We have a God who doesn't stand in our way there. He doesn't, he doesn't necessarily always stop us from doing what we want to do. Now, there are moments in time and moments in history where he has stepped in and done things to change people's minds or to change people's way of thinking. But most of the time, it seems that God just sort of surrenders us to what we want. So he's like, oh, you want to do things your own way? Absolutely. Go ahead. Have fun. <laughs> you know, and then we go we'll do our... We'll see how this turns out Right, we you. go do our thing and we totally mess it up. And then we're like, oh man, I totally want to go back to him. And what's beautiful is back to that prodigal son story, our God always takes us back, which is crazy. As a parent, there are a lot of times that I don't want to do that. You know, I'm so sorry, dad. I can't believe I did that again. Yeah. Part of me wants to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that we're done with the apologies. You should just go to your room because I'm tired of, of saying, you know, I forgive you. That's not how it's supposed to work. Like, If God is constantly forgiving us and bringing us back into his fold, then maybe we should just 
get over ourselves and go, all right, I'm coming back. And now it's time for the Enneagram. And specifically today or tonight, whenever you listen to this podcast, what is Agent Zero? Does that make sense? Uh, no. Oh, it doesn't. <clears throat> yeah, like you like you're surprised that it doesn't make sense. So there is no zero in the Enneagram. And now the the host of Enneagram, Erica Haas. Um, yes. So today on the Enneagram section of this podcast, um I really want us to I just want to talk about one of the types and we're gonna start with Number one. That's There's a many, good place to it start. It is a great place to start. Other people start with different numbers, but um, I'm going to start with, I'm just going to start at the beginning. Can I ask one. a... Go for why it, would you? Why would you choose a different number to start with? Than so, one? so you, why, so a lot of people end up starting with eight and why they do is because eight, nine, and one go together. Oh. Um, but Which... also because eights, they want to know how it is relevant to them right away. And then they'll be all good, and then they can listen to all the other ones. Whereas mm. a seven, they wouldn't listen to any of the other ones if they were right away. So they will listen to all of them and wait until their turn. So that's why cool. I've also heard that people start with eight. But you're starting with one. Yep. Which makes you a seven. <laughs> no. <laughs> not even close. <laughs> oh, I do not run from pain. That's what a, a normally a seven does. So what is a one? I stick in there. Okay. So a one... There's two different names that go with one, a reformer or a perfectionist. So you can kind of think that that might already be a type A type of a person. Was that Joshua? Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that what you said he yes, was? Yes, because he was very black and white. I don't think like he did what was right all of the time. So, so yeah, a type one is a reformer or a perfectionist. They, they get a lot of... They, they really fear doing things wrong or making mistakes. So they are certain that things are supposed to be done in a certain way and that it's, and that it's efficient that way. And so when they're actually kind of critiquing you, they actually think they're helping you. Like, this is the better way. This is, this is the... So I, when I was reading in The Road Back to You, it was somebody who watches you basically do the... Um, <laughs> watches you... Like load the dishwasher and it's basically like, eh, that should go this way or that should go that way or that should blah, blah, blah. Because they actually think that there's a better way of putting the things in the dishwasher to more efficiently wash the dishes. Anyways, but yes, they are more black and white, very methodical and purposeful with what they do. They, they do not necessarily, it's not necessarily a pride thing of why they want to do what's right and wrong. Um... But it's more of an insecurity of the fear of doing it wrong, if that makes sense. So it's not necessarily – because, for example, like an eight, it would be a pride thing of I want to be right. Whereas this is more – it's more of an insecurity of I don't want to do something wrong. So the type one is is an anger. They, they have a lot of anger that ends up boiling up and spilling over. They're part of the anger triad, which is an eight, nine, and a one. And they, they show anger in different ways. So 
A one would show anger by they hold it in until it just erupts and then they let it go. Um, but yes, so I always think of a one, for those of you who watch Grey's Anatomy, you have, <laughs> James is like, no. You have, so Derek and Meredith, they are very opposites, whereas Derek, stop falling asleep, Christopher. <laughs> but those of the girls are like, yes, I totally get this. Because, for example, on one of the episodes, there's a convicted felon that is basically on death row and he comes into the hospital and Derek is like no we're not going to save him he's he he needs to die like we are not going to save him whereas Meredith which is that's very black and white like he did something wrong he needs to die whereas Meredith is like but like he could change you know it's it's more the black and white ends up changing with person to person you know so it's a lot of gray so anyways type one reformer perfectionist once again I am by no means a, a like expert in Enneagram, but I'm becoming more and more familiar with it. And I really enjoy it, getting to know myself more and others and just how to work with them best. So, yep, type one, reformer perfectionist. That Thoughts, was, that Christopher? That was so <laughs> great. The road back to me. All right, to conclude this episode of the Yamcast, we're going to dive into our the Yam spot, this little idea that we have at the end of every episode we're talking about college and young adults and how to lead them well in ministry. And the thought we wanted to throw your way today, if you're helping out with college students, but first of all, we love you. We're so grateful that you're doing it. There's, this thought kind of comes in two parts depending on your context. If you're in a college town, and you're leading maybe IV or crew or some other, you know, maybe a local college ministry at your church or something like that. Uh, you you have kids from or young adults from, you know, September all the way through May, and you're probably jacked because everybody's there and everything's great. And then in the summertime, it's difficult for you to stay focused because and maybe you even take the summer off because you know all the kids have gone back to home and all that kind of stuff. And so what we're we just want to say. When you've got them, for those times that you've got them, September through you know mid-November to end of December, somewhere in there, all the way through the beginning of January into you know so on and so forth, middle of May, end of May, use that time to the best possible of, of your ability. When I'm thinking about ministry planning, I a lot of times take a calendar of when I know that the, the busy times are going to be, and I just chalk that part full with stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, it's a back to school bash. It's a Halloween party. It's a, you know, Thanksgiving meal. It's a Christmas thing. And then those are my, my, my main tenants for the fall. And then I throw a bunch of other stuff in, you know, small group meetings or fun, you know, scavenger hunt kind of stuff. And then I go to the second half of the calendar and I start looking at what are those, what are sort of the key things there leading up to spring break, a lot of colleges that I know their college ministries do like mission trips over mm -hmm. spring break, stuff like that. So I, I, I'm ramping all that up going into that. And basically my point is use the time. Well, if you've got kids during the school year, use time. Well, and Erica, if your context isn't a college town and you're more like, well, we're in Freeport, Illinois. So we, we don't have, you know, a major university nearby what would you suggest to people who are leading a ministry like in a context sort of like ours? Well, I would say tapping into those people when they do come home on break. So we had 
a lot of extra people over our Christmas time because they're home for break. So knowing who those people are and being able to invite them to what you already have going on. But the same thing for the summer. I mean, that's three, four months. So at including them into your your young adult ministry there as well. But what we've also done is instead of it just being because we don't have, I mean, we have a community college, but they're people who usually they've always lived here. Nobody really is traveling to come to school here. So we've actually just opened it up and made it young adult instead of college. So we have, I mean, we have marrieds, we have people with kids. So we've made it more open for more than just college. So it's, it still is an age group that is similar, but not all of them are doing the same thing at the same time within that age group. So we've kind of opened it up to make it more inclusive of just that age instead of it being specifically a college group. Yeah, that's good. I think what we're saying then is use the time well, be mindful of the calendar, and then be flexible. If your idea is, I would love to do this, but your context doesn't give you that, whether that be a college ministry. I want a college ministry, but you only have a community college and a few a few kids to deal with. Then open it up. Make it a little different. Change the the perspective just a little bit so that you have a group that you can meet with and, and kind of move forward with that. But use your time well. Find ways to serve. We served over... Christmas break, we served meals to some people in our church that are, uh, you know, a little bit needy. We had a grant given to us, and then some people threw some money in, in the pot, and we went to the store and bought some stuff and put them in, you know, gift baskets, and then sent those gift baskets to these families in need. That was a fun little event that some of our college students had a chance to be a part of. So it was neat. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the Yamcast. You can check us out at yamcast.podbean.com or on any other podcasting apps like iTunes. We would love it if you'd leave us a review that is any number between four and a half and five stars. If you have any questions that you'd like us to answer here on the podcast, you can email us at yamcastpod at gmail.com. That is yamcastpod at gmail.com. If you'd like more information about us, you can check us out at parkhillschurch.com or on the App Store with the Park Hills Church app. We are also on Instagram, so give us a follow at The Yamcast. Cast.